fucking my fucking mentor always says like uh certain research is just sexier <laughs> and i now i start yeah. using like sexy <laughs> as a word to describe research <laughs> but he's right it, I, I get what he's talking about there's appeal and like it's monetizable and you know all the things yeah. that like i guess something sexy is welcome to Disorderland, the podcast that wants to know How do you get all of that in those genes? Today's episode is all about genome-wide association studies on mental illness. Why are they so popular? How do they keep getting funded? And what dangers do they pose for us socially and politically? We're going to question biological essentialism, the idea that our biology determines who we are, and genetic determinism, the belief that our genes control our behavior. A little obligatory disclaimer, what we're not questioning is your suffering. That is real and painful, and it requires care and support. We're pushing back on science that seeks to reduce our complex human experiences to simple gene mutations or chemical reactions. I've been very interested in this topic for a while now, but I'm not a scientist. So I asked Aisha to explain to us what's wrong with these studies and how capitalism distorts the scientific process. As usual, we begin with a meme. I think you sent me this meme a little while back that is by ADHD Meme Therapy. Yeah, which it's, is it's like one of the really big, yeah, the really big uh, ADHD meme page. One of the one of the many big ADHD meme pages that I personally have a strong hate for. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he have over like a hundred thousand? Yeah, yeah, and I can get it. I mean, I, I get, I get why. I guess the memes resonate with a lot of people because they're consistently just, I guess, talking about the struggles and the daily hurdles of of ADHD. Well, things related to ADHD, but then as you go through it, you're like, well, a lot of people go through this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So this meme is. Uh, Okay, it says, me after informing ADHD deniers that scientists have discovered the first genome-wide significant risk loci for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And then there's like a a gif of Patrick Bateman from American (laughs) Psycho. And he's like walking down the hallway and he has this like headphones in. And I feel like he's like... It's supposed to be like, oh, like, like I got you. I'm a badass. Like I yeah. got you. But like, yeah. but he just, I can't really tell what his facial expression is. And like, I feel like there's a lot of layers to the fact that like, this is from American Psycho. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then in the caption, he does give us a source. So mm-hmm. I looked at the source, mm-hmm. and it's a study in Nature. Um, mm-hmm. And the title is Discovery of the First Genome-Wide Significant Risk Loci for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. So mm-hmm. I feel like he just looked at this and like read the title and was like, oh, they found the ADHD genes yes. and then made that meme, but didn't actually like read the yeah, study. Yeah, very unlikely. So, <laughs> and my first question is like, what is a genome-wide significant risk loci? Like, what does that <laughs> loci, mean? Loci, loci. Loci, oh, okay. <laughs> See? That's why I'm not the scientist. <laughs> uh, I, I thought it was loci too until I had to like work on it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, loci. <laughs> um, well, I guess this is like we can talk about uh, the the general uh, the general idea of the studies that 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 do this. So this is part of like a lot of neuroscience and psychiatry studies, I guess, that focus on 
trying to investigate the biological basis of psychiatric diagnoses. And there's a bunch of approaches. The most common I think people are more familiar with might be neuroimaging studies, which try to figure out essentially what we call colloquially big brain, small brain studies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But they essentially try to show that there's neuroanatomical differences between the brains of people that have certain psychiatric diagnoses compared to people that don't have that diagnosis. And, uh, but this is sort of the same, uh, the same idea. The purpose of it is to prove that these diagnoses are because people are uh, inherently different just because of the way they are in a vacuum. Um, and, and we'll go into why these studies are problematic. And I think what they do is they try to codify and justify bioessentialism, essentially. Um, and they're, I think they're, they're, at, they're a legacy of a lot of studies like this that have tried to justify that a lot of other social constructs that are man-made are in fact just real biological, simple, very simple biological differences that can be reduced to like one chromosome or, you know, skin color or whatever it is. And it's interesting how they've actually been quite similar, like neuroimaging studies, studies related to like race, for example. Um, there were a lot of studies measuring like dimensions of the skull and brain size and volume that tried to show there's mm-hmm. inherent differences between people that are white and people that are, you know, black and brown. So it's mm-hmm. part of this umbrella of studies. <laughs> so now instead of measuring skull size, we're measuring genome wide significant risk loci. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so essentially the uh, our our genetic code is is well one it's really long and complicated, right? And there's mm-hmm. a lot of different genes that code for different functions and they all come together to create these complex processes in our human body that make us human. Um, but what these studies are trying to do is uh, essentially show that people with psychiatric diagnoses and I'll say that these studies are in other branches of medicine. So this is like a popular mm-hmm. field right now. And the reason it's popular is because of the Human Genome Project and other technologies mm-hmm. that have risen essentially in the last 10 years that are able to read our genetic code. So what that means is essentially literally be able to do it fast and using like a little amount of computing power. So for example, I use it a lot in our lab to be able to read like millions of bacterial genomes that you can then that you can we call it sequencing right this is the pro, like that's the process of of figuring out like what the code itself is um mm-hmm. but that's essentially being applied to humans now except that's a very different context and yeah. the idea is or the like same. human behavior <laughs> human behavior right and mm-hmm. uh people might have maybe been familiar with this a little bit more in studies related to like cancer Uh, Or maybe the Mm -hmm. idea of like high risk genes that you've heard that concept, especially with like breast cancer, there's like BRCA1 and 2 that people are a little bit more familiar with. Um, Mm -hmm. But the idea is to find like mutations, right? So mutations are like you have the normal uh, code for a specific gene and then there's something called single nucleotide polymorphism. So that's basically like one base change. I think if you remember like biology in in school, (laughs) where there's a bunch of A's and T's and C's and G's, right? And if there's Mm -hmm. like, if most people have a C somewhere that someone has a T, then you're trying to prove basically that this one T in this one gene um, or in a bunch of genes is... Mm -hmm somehow highly associated with a particular disease process. Mm -hmm. And it's really complicated to do that just because you're trying to narrow down such a complex thing, like a disease process, 
to mm-hmm. a set of genes, right? So like you're really reducing it. It's very reductive inherently, very reductive, just mm-hmm. the idea of what you're doing, just because it's mm-hmm. trying to prove a causative relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to do that in without any context of the environment and all of the social factors that affect why people get sick. So that's even problematic. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of controversy with genome-wide association studies in medicine in general because people are very critical increasingly of their validity. Mm-hmm. And if they are even informative and useful because of the fact that it's basically asking this very, very reductive question. Are there any genes mm-hmm. responsible for this very simple, like very complex disease process? Mm-hmm. And there's so many other factors that it's not able to you know, normalize for, right? That are call- called confounding variables. And then you add a layer in psychiatry where the disease process itself is a construct. So the idea of, of whether what's considered like normal and abnormal is a construct. And then mm-hmm. you suddenly are creating oh, like, you're trying to basically compare a construct to is there a real biological basis for this construct? So it goes mm-hmm. back to like the same studies that that tried to prove race is real, gender is real, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like what I understand is they used to do like candidate gene studies where they were like, we have this gene and like, let's look for this specific gene in people and see if if it's responsible for whatever disease but now with all this like computing power they can do a genome-wide association study which is where you take a bunch of like whole genomes and then compare them Mm -hmm. right and see like what so you do alignments it's called alignments i guess of like you basically line them all up right to see like how similar Mm -hmm. or different they are and then you see Mm -hmm. oh if differences pop up then do enough of those differences pop up enough times in the population that you considered the disease population, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, before we used to do uh, like what we call, I guess, like gene linkage studies that looked Mm -hmm. at largely um, diseases related to like in like that are inherited and family ancestry based diseases. So that narrowed the population size because you really had to study like study these genes in context of families, because that's how you tried Mm -hmm. to understand like what might be what might be causing or like what what gene might be really I would say not causing like just associated right just shows up mm-hmm. frequently enough in this context mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not necessarily because it's causative but again the problem with that was you couldn't really have gigantic like study sets just because you were restricted to like families as, as your study population but genome-wide uh, association studies you can use anything in anybody so you mm-hmm. can and there's no restrictions essentially they don't use any restrictions in terms of uh, their populations uh, so largely you can go to any ancestry any ethnicity any part of the mm-hmm. world and that's partly the criticism because now mm-hmm. you've just added a million more variables that you mm-hmm. absolutely like humanly cannot control for because <laughs> yeah. you're comparing people from around the world and that's sort of like what the study is the study that the meme referenced mm-hmm. um it's essentially pulling from one of these uh like i guess one of these databases so a lot mm-hmm. of these genome-wide studies come from databases that were like born out of um, the Human Genome Project, so databases mm-hmm. that anybody can really pull from. Um, mm-hmm. And in this case, I guess, uh, or in other studies, they use, we're talking like 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, like upwards of like 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are big numbers. And the claim that they have is that bigger numbers give you more statistical power. 
And mm-hmm. therefore, you can prove that certain genes are like associated with certain diseases with a higher likelihood because now mm-hmm. they pop up in more instances. But the criticism is that because the numbers are so big, all the yeah. problems with uh, trying to prove a causal relationship in a fundamentally reductive context basically get amplified because now mm-hmm. you have so many people and so many variables. <laughs> Well, and I also, so I also, like, I can't do math and I don't understand statistics, but I do, I have read that the bigger your data set, the more it will amplify, like, tiny, tiny differences. And so is that a problem with these? When you have, like, 20,000 people that you're looking at, you're, you're, like, seeing, like, oh, there's some differences or similarities or whatever, but it's, like, kind of making that look like a bigger thing than it actually is. Right. So, yeah. So essentially they amplify any bias that you have and any like anything that could have popped up by chance. Now it's Mm -hmm. way more likely to just pop up by chance. So uh, essentially, I mean, even if you think about it, right, like uh, think about why people are turning to studies and why people love using data to be able to understand Mm -hmm. like I don't know, and understand our mental anguish and distress, right? Like try to quantify it and try to prove that there's these like genes related to that. It's because of the like increasing reliance on turning to Western science and medicine to be able to validate everything that we're experiencing, which is like not necessary, right? But uh, that's why uh, anything using scientific jargon, right? The moment you can say that this is proven by data, it was statistically significant. It used mm-hmm. large data sets, genome-wide association studies. Like all of these are just scientific jargon that make it seem like it's more real. And that's basically what the meme is, right? It doesn't get into anything. Yeah. It just states this one study that, you know, they likely just read the title and automatically to them, that's like Bible, right? That's truth. And that's like how the universe works. And mm-hmm. and that's off of one study, which is important, right? To, to note that a lot of these studies are so pre- preliminary and people meet you know the media doesn't really follow them to even figure out a lot of them eventually get disproven right a lot of them get retracted Mm -hmm. a lot of them later are criticized very very heavily by other people in the field because they their methodology was inherently flawed so you don't really like see those arcs in the media because like why would they Mm -hmm. be hot sensationalist news cycles i guess um Mm -hmm. but i think some like yeah so when thinking about these studies that's really like why there's they're so popular now it's this hunt for objectivity even though Mm -hmm. objectivity itself i want to like talk about these studies in that context is like a social construct right like there is no objectivity and what i mean by that is when you're doing these studies it's important to think about like who's funding these studies who's doing them like what system are they using to do them so what are the like and what are the biases that they're coming in with and what Mm -hmm. are like the predisposed like notions of like social constructs of how they understand the world and how are those being influencing the fundamental questions that they asked. Right. And when we think about that, the question that they're asking is so, so, so reductive. Like that's actually just like flawed science. Like you shouldn't be asking that that sort of question to any data set because it can't answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of how normalized pathologization is and how normal, like normalized and accepted it is to reduce so many complex things to binaries of good and bad that diseases are just reduced to like people are inherently sick and their brains are broken, then the question is so simple, right? And like you're you're trying to use a data set to, to understand that. Um, so essentially when you have data sets like this, 
you if you don't ask very specific, precise questions and normalize for all the relevant confounding variables, then mm-hmm. you'll like you will see with beta, big data sets, especially you will see statistically significant things that pop up just by chance. So essentially, mm-hmm. if you have like five fifty thousand random adults, right, that and you you compare them to 50,000 other random adults, like just compare group A to group B, you are like very likely to find 500 significant associations that pop up, more likely to pop up in group A, just because, just purely by chance. And mm-hmm. that so basically the more numbers you have, and now you're dealing with, again, the human genome is so big, and I don't think maybe people understand the complexity mm-hmm. of that, because we do this, like we ask this question in the context of bacteria. So we try to understand, for example, can we use bacterial genomes to figure out if there's any genes that are associated with predicting bacterial antibiotic resistance? So that's still, Mm -hmm. and that's so complex because even bacteria live in communities and interact with their environment and are constantly being shaped by all the stressors in their environment. So it is a very complicated question to ask for a single-celled organism, let alone scaling that up to a human being and asking Mm -hmm. that exact same question. Because the question has not changed at all. It is just asking, are there any genes strongly associated with this one phenotype, right? Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. difference being the phenotype is also a social construct. Like you can actually quantify and measure and prove antibiotic resistance empirically. You can't do that to ADHD. ADHD is diagnosed based off of a list of criteria that someone came up with in a committee that came to Mm -hmm. some sort of consensus. And then you just like check these things off a list based on the subjective bias of whoever is diagnosing you. So Mm -hmm. it's so much subjectivity that it's it's interesting how they're still framed as objective studies. (laughs) So phenotype just to be clear because i feel like i know what it means but maybe i don't uh is a set of observable characteristics in an individual versus like a genotype which is like a actual thing you can measure exactly so So adhd is a phenotype because we observe these like behaviors and then yeah like a personality trait right Mm -hmm. a personality trait is a phenotype but also there's like physical phenotypes right like you're Uh, Mm -hmm. like your hair being like my hair being a certain color, right? That's a phenotype. But then Uh there's an underlying basis to why that is. And Mm -hmm. it's because there's a bunch of like intricate genetic and environmental processes that lead to why my hair is that color. So we Mm -hmm. call those like genotype and environmental variables, right? So your phenotype is basically a combination of genotype and everything else in context. So your environment Mm -hmm. and your social context, and that produces like the ultimate phenotype. Mm-hmm. But even but like your genotype for your hair color is like even that is really complicated. And yes. then when you're trying to say like the genotype for your for ADHD, which is like way more complex. Yeah, I mean, that would be the equivalent of like not even close to the complexity, but saying essentially if your favorite color is purple, what's the gene causing for your favorite color to be purple? You know what I mean? It's that, and that's a very simple, that's even simple, Mm -hmm. right? Because now you're asking what's your, like what's the genes that are causing someone to be uh, fundamentally divergent in the context of the society that they exist in and Mm -hmm. be less productive in certain contexts, but also be like, you know, have hyper-focus in certain contexts. So it's just like, you've literally taken so much complexity and you're asking, oh like what are the building blocks of 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 this 
like mm-hmm. really complex existence. And I think that's something as human beings we try to do in general, right? Like we try to be very reductive about a lot of things. Yeah. And this is sort of science's way of, of, of doing that. But I think it's interesting now because there is widespread criticism of genome-wide association studies like throughout medicine. And, mm-hmm. but they are now the, the kind of the hallmark of what people are turning to to validate psychiatric diagnoses as, as mm-hmm. just like real diseases and disorders. Um, but inter- interestingly, the problems that they have, um, yes, there's some unique problems that come with studying the genome versus just like measuring, you know, the size of your brain. But a lot mm-hmm. of the problems are still overlapping with like the way psychiatry used to do this, like with neuroimaging studies. So, uh, for example, like the general criticisms of even imaging studies were that, uh, and I think we talked about this before. Uh, a lot of mm-hmm. like there is this uh, like a lot of people do critical like reviews, literature reviews uh, of, of just summarizing, like, let's see all of the neuroimaging studies and ADHD in the last two decades and see like how they've how they've fared. One thing is still till this day, there haven't been any studies that have like and, and by that, I mean, there haven't been reproducible, accurate studies that consistently have shown that there's any biomarker. So the word biomarker mm-hmm. is whether it's like the size of your brain or a genome or whatever the hell biological entity to be able to prove that there's something like that tied to a psychiatric diagnosis. There hasn't been any biological mm-hmm. basis identified yet. And the biggest one, I guess, with ADHD people refer to is like studies that show that there's like a smaller a smaller front mm-hmm. prefrontal cortex. Um, and these are essentially they're, they're trying to look for signatures or even signature studies like that try to look mm-hmm. for connectivity in the brain and show that like people with ADHD have different connectivity patterns, just different. Like, I don't know what mm-hmm. that even means. Mm-hmm. Um, but a big, big criticism of that is, for example, a lot of these studies, their ADHD population has already been on meds for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the the it's really then in that context impossible to isolate differences because it's already mm-hmm. been shown in more reliable studies that medication does cause a lot of, you know, significant changes in the brain over time, mm-hmm. right? And especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about something as strong as stimulants. So that's that's one thing. And other problem I think that's pretty consistent even with genome wide studies is they don't control for like a lot of social and economic variables and environmental variables. So mm-hmm. like what what like what kind of environment do these people live in? Like what access to resources do they have? What's their income status? Mm-hmm. Like what what kind of healthcare do they have? Like none of those are controlled mm-hmm. for. It's just like what's the size of their brain or like this part yeah. of the brain's brain matter, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Or I think there was even studies that uh, that looked at, for example, try- there's big studies that are referenced in ADHD for proving that like children with ADHD have uh, fundamental neurodeve- neurodevelopmental defects or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in those studies, you'll notice that the like the gap between the control and the experimental population and age can be larger than 10 years sometimes. And mm-hmm. in that, it's just like, well, the kids' brains are actually just different at a certain age. Yeah. And if you compare them to someone that's 10, 15 years older, that's that's actually just the normal process of development. Mm-hmm. So, like, these are, it seems obvious that you would control for that, but they, these are, mm-hmm. like, some of the big, big problems with these studies that mm-hmm. always reoccur. Yeah. Well, and a lot of that has to do with, like, where are you setting, like, what standards are you setting for like the speed of development, you know, because it's like, if you're saying the kid has to be at this, this stage at this age, then, you know, you're setting that standard and that's also subjective. 
based in like your society and your culture. And even statistical analysis is subjective. I think people look to statistics maybe yeah. as some hallmark of God's truth, but it, mm-hmm. but it's it's not because human beings set the standard or threshold for whatever is considered significant, right? Mm-hmm. And and you control the data set that you're using. You control the yeah. analyses that you run on them, and you control the comparisons that you're making. You can like this is a, a human process, which means it's all of the flaws yeah. that go into human beings are showing up in this data, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's like choices being made. Yeah, at you all have these to stages. make subjective, yeah, subjective mm-hmm. choices. And so, for example, uh, even like you know, people are maybe familiar with the term like p-value, which is like the threshold that people use to determine like a cutoff for how often something has to show up and how consistently has it to show up in a certain pattern to be able to like be real, like if that pattern's real. But well, it has again, to do with like with like chance. Like if if the exactly. p-value is a certain number, then it's likely not just due chance. To chance. Exactly. Okay. And, and like you, you have a certain confidence interval, like you call, like, we can say that this is real with this amount of a confidence. And mm-hmm. the thing is, though, with, again, with genome, with genome wine association studies, like, it's like, you know, if you're comparing 500,000 genome markers, which is like, kind of, you know, what you would be looking at, looking at human genome studies, 500 would pop up just randomly, significantly often by chance. And, mm-hmm. Again, a lot of these uh, are, for example, now there's more studies that have shown that all of the previous studies that that tried to prove that there's genetic differences between people of different races are flawed. There's Mm -hmm. more reliable studies now that show that there are differences genetically when you look at someone's geographic area, where they live, and Mm -hmm. all of the environmental effects of of where they live, like what they eat, what like the environment they live in, how much access to resources, and that can influence the the genes that you have which which makes mm-hmm. sense and that necessarily has nothing to do with race right it makes a lot more mm-hmm. sense when you put it in context of like the social economic environment and political environment that you live in yeah well an adhd is like highly correlated to like poverty and yeah, yeah. early childhood like adverse events and there are studies that make that claim too. It's interesting. Like there are like with mm-hmm. ADHD, they'll say like, oh, it was also noted and like, you know, almost like an afterthought that <laughs> aside from the fact that they're like, they had small brains, it was also noted that like this population had like a significantly lower income status. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's, but Which also that's not the headline. Your brain. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the headline, right? Like it's not yeah. like, it's not really the hot headline that people are, people are looking for. And I think that's important well, and also I think in, in a lot of these studies, like what's the, like, who is this benefiting, right? Like if the conclusion that they're going for, the hypothesis that they're trying to prove is that like this psychiatric diagnosis is just because of some neurodevelopmental delay, or mm-hmm. it can be narrowed down to a set of genes, then essentially that hypothesis is very f- favorable to like existing systems and how how individualism and everything is framed in terms of like our distress and pain being individualized, mm-hmm. right? Like it's something that's unique to our biology. And that's why we're experiencing pain and distress as opposed to they're rooted in the systems that we have to exist in. So it yeah. validates like existing systems and also and like the ruling class. 
Right. And also it validates psychiatry. It validates uh, psychiatry as like, till this day, they've been unable to prove that any of their diagnoses have a real biological basis. So mm-hmm. they're really at this point for the validity and existence of psychiatry, right, in its current form, they're really hunting mm-hmm. for anything yeah. to finally be like, we finally have proof that this is a real thing. And we didn't just make it up because they did make it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now it's like that diagnosis is key, right? In order to prove that like a diagnosis is valid, it's it's really helpful to then have a study to go to that you could say that, yeah, mm-hmm. like look at these people. These people just have different genes than everybody else. And mm-hmm. therefore the disease is real. And at the same time, then that justifies why pharmaceuticals are funding these studies. And because well, they do. And <laughs> when you talk about funding, um, a ton of like government funds go into gene research like the human genome project was funded by the u.s government and these so um there is an author on this gene this adhd gene study that we're talking about his name is uh benjamin m neal and i was looking for like a more recent study on adhd genes and i found one from uh what is it from 20 oh from this year from february and this guy mm-hmm. is also on the study mm-hmm. and he's in the conflicts of interest section mm-hmm. as um being a consultant for three biotech companies mm-hmm. he's also part of the psychiatric genome consortium which is yeah. like a international group of researchers that get a ton of funding from like the u.s government and the uk government And so I think it's really interesting how much government funding goes into this because, like you were saying, it justifies the system Mm -hmm. because it can be like, well, this doesn't have anything to do with, like, you know, rich people hoarding the resources (laughs) or, like, (laughs) the state being oppressive. It's just your genes and you are defective. And here's the studies that prove it. So buy more medication and, like, Mm -hmm. like, feed into the medical industrial complex and the pharmaceutical industry to be able to, like, find a cure. Like, because if this is your biology that's defective then that's the only cure right as opposed to Mm -hmm. god forbid you realize that like the government is the problem and you tear it down so i mean there i think thinking about like what are what is the social context of how these studies Mm -hmm. occur is important because Mm -hmm. they're not objective (laughs) they're very subjective and the questions they're asking are extremely biased questions to begin with like and that's the foundation of these studies right it's like if the question is wrong that's like Mm -hmm. a series of of confounding variables and biases that fall into the study then that totally like negate the validity of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really funny because this study from 2022 about the ADHD risk loci, they found 27 this time, but a lot of them were like the same from the last study and they're just kind of like grouping. We found like more and put them together. And it says, um, we found ADHD to be highly polygenic around 7,000 variants explaining 90% of the SNP, which is single Single nucleotide polymorphisms, yeah. um, Heritability. And then it says uh, more than 90% of ADHD (laughs) influencing variants are shared with other psychiatric disorders, autism, schizophrenia, and depression, and phenotypes like educational attainment. Yes, so I think that was really, that's a perfect (laughs) example of like, they get there, right? 
they, yeah. they, they get they get there but then it's just mm-hmm. like all of that is thrown out so well one thing that they're showing is they're I mean they're telling on themselves as I like <laughs> to say is they're saying essentially that in our study that claims that we have found these significant genes that are strongly associated with this one disease uh, they also mm-hmm. show up in all of these other diseases <laughs> which means they're yeah. no longer strongly associated with this one disease so mm-hmm. inherently it invalidates the conclusions that they're drawing from their data right because if it shows up in multiple contexts then it's not unique and Mm -hmm. furthermore they do show that like you can have like essentially if you have decreased access to education and again with income i think this has been shown in a lot of studies if you have a lower income status then that's also significantly associated with this pattern but then Mm -hmm. it's just like that's all ignored right and i think that's mm-hmm. that's what invalidates all of these studies because the conclusions being drawn sometimes don't even like come from the data that they actually produced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i guess they could be trying to say like this these are associated with these disorders and that causes the like lack of educational attainment but you can't really say that because it's like you can't well, say I think it's, it's more the other way around, right? Like, yeah. I think it mm-hmm. makes more sense that if certain people are growing up in a context of like what kind of people don't have access to education, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so then you're talking mm-hmm. about the context of probably people that are the most marginalized by colonialism and capitalism and mm-hmm. have lack of access to just like everything, healthcare, safe, safety, security, shelter, resources, healthcare. And yeah, it sounds like that's a fundamentally very different environment and it's constant, a constant stressor. And that mm-hmm. could actually change your physiology and affect your genes yeah. and your brain and everything else. So, mm-hmm. it, and I guarantee you, there's a lot of what we call comorbidities, right? <laughs> like a lot mm-hmm. of other illnesses in this, in the same populations because their health is being compromised by the context of the systemic oppression that they exist in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm seeing, cause I follow like, a bunch of science journals uh, <laughs> in my like RSS feeds just because like I want to know like what studies are coming out <laughs> and I saw like the beginning of this year like a bunch of things come out that were like landmark study about uh-huh. gene schizophrenia genes and then there was another one that was about like the bipolar genes and I compared right. them and they're like these two studies <laughs> were using the same data, data set, set from yeah. this thing called schema which stands mm-hmm. for uh, what does this stand for? Schizophrenia exome sequencing meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like a just a giant data set. Um, and it was just like so weird to me because like the, the, the press around it was like, ah, we found these things. But it was like they weren't saying like it's the same data set and also a lot of the same researchers. And like, you know, it's this very small group of people that do using, all this. Yeah. Yeah. Doing all these things. And they're making it look like in the press like it's it's bigger than it really is, I think. Yeah, and I think that's another thing to talk about, just like the how the media and uh, even like, you know, even in the context of the meme, right? Like how mm-hmm. people understand and perceive these messages and how the media delivers them to everybody else. Um, and again, the, the end messaging that people get are that like, mental disorders are rooted in innate biological defects or genes that are that are causing them and they there's no context i guess for for example like i talked about like p hacking right like how a lot of these studies one don't even have data sets that are valid or they're asking questions that don't make any sense to ask in this context that don't you know 
for example, have any controls for ethnicity and income status and like just any social variable. And Mm -hmm. more than anything, they have no context, I guess, of like what ends up happening. Like it's not like the media follows the study and sees that, for example, it's never replicated again, right? Because the mm-hmm. way something is considered a little bit more valid in the umbrella of science is that it has to be what we call reproducible, which means that other groups have to investigate and ask the same questions and use even different data sets and uh, different contexts and should arrive at the same answer. And with most of these mm-hmm. studies, you'll like you'll see that it's never been replicated. And Mm -hmm. a lot of time that's because the data sets itself are like really shady. The methodology is extremely shady. So a lot of these studies, the the Mm -hmm. way that they actually did the statistical analysis is unclear and they don't talk about like which variables they normalized for and which they didn't normalize for um, Mm -hmm. or how they controlled for certain factors. And I mean, ultimately, I think it's just interesting that um, there's even a bias towards like what the media grabs, right? And what, what they don't grab. So um, when I was at UCLA, after I did my undergraduate there, um, I worked at like the Neuropsychiatric Institute at the Brain Mapping Center and uh, in the lab of uh, Dr. Scott Fears, who who was pretty cool, but we were, I guess, asking even the wrong questions at the time. But Mm -hmm. um, so I was studying uh, bipolar uh, disorder and in the context of, again, finding, trying to find if there's neuroanatomical variations that are significant um, in people diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I mean, at the, at the end of it, everything like the outcome of at least the study that I was involved in was that there weren't. And, and at least not significant differences that you could say are so unique and constantly reoccurring in this one population. And Mm -hmm. that's not published in some like high impact journal. And that's a general bias of science itself, right? Like I I went on to be like way more heavily involved in infectious diseases research, but I think this is something that we all like face constantly. It's like the pressure of trying to publish what we call like sexy research, mm-hmm. um, which is research that's going to fall right into like either what's popular or like what systems already like want you to believe. And mm-hmm. right. So it's like if it's and negative results. Right. So essentially, our, mm-hmm. our like a lot of our research showed that there weren't any significant associations between bi- with bipolar disorder and any sort of like signatures that we found relevant with like neuroanatomical like differences or variations. That's mm-hmm. an, considered a negative result. Right. Because mm-hmm. you didn't find a positive association and positive yeah. associations are and and there's like a, like there's an article that I read that showed that psychiatry is the most common like scientific and uh, medical discipline where there's this positive publication bias where mm-hmm. there's so many studies that if you you know have a positive finding then you're going to get into a higher impact journal and you're going to get picked up by the media and there's so much attention and then there's mm-hmm. this overwhelming amount of negative studies that just like don't ever get looked at and definitely yeah. don't make it to like the biggest journals And it's Mm -hmm. interesting because if you look at it, then that's what's really valid, right? So it's like, for all these years, there have been studies that have showed that there is no biological basis to these psychiatric diagnoses. And yet Mm -hmm. the ones, the one-off study that happens to show something gets so much media attention. And when you trace it, it's 
most likely not reproducible, right? And it's most likely mm-hmm. not shown again, or those same set of genes are never shown again. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's completely lost. And then you have someone making a freaking meme about it <laughs> as though it's like, yeah. wow, we have figured out <laughs> the mm-hmm. ADHD is caused by these like 1927, whatever the hell loci. <laughs> yeah. And then everybody thinks that that's just what's that's true. real. Yeah. And yeah. I think that asking the question, what is real is, is really important, right? Like we turn to scientific validity to prove that, that, oh, look, there's studies about this. So it must be real. And by real, we mean like, it's like a law of nature, right? Like the law of gravity, <laughs> like things mm-hmm. will fall to the ground. Therefore, psychiatry is a mental disorder, <laughs> but that's mm-hmm. not the case. That is not how mm-hmm. it works, right? That's not the amount of scientific evidence that is, that exists to, to back that up. It has not been reproducible, reproducible to that extent. It has not been like replicated in different contexts and it's also occurring within the context of like a colonial capitalist psychiatric system that has its foundations in like the 18th and 19th century when colonialism itself like landed in america right so it's like that's the context of the of the system that we do science in and if mm-hmm. you're not, that's why if you're not asking the right questions, it's really easy to reproduce human biases and like, whether it's racism or like sexism. And now in this case, right, <laughs> trying to prove the biological basis of all of the of people's mental anguish and pain over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know about the the warrior gene? That was like this gene that they back when they did like the candidate gene studies, they thought like this is the gene that causes like aggression and like criminal Mm -hmm. behavior and whatever. And then when they started to do like genome wide studies that actually like disproved that there was any link between this Mm -hmm. gene variant and those Mm -hmm. things. But like for a long time, they thought that that was like true. They were like, yeah, there's a warrior gene. And like people used it as like defense in like criminal cases in yes, court yes, and yes. stuff. And yeah. then they found that like that was all just bullshit and there actually isn't an association. No, and I mean, that's a like till this day, right? The the idea of like antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy and, and sociopathy are used mm-hmm. as though they are laws of nature in court to 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 criminalize people. And like, obviously, that narrative is a very profitable narrative in like the Hollywood entertainment industry. But there's so many financial interests backing up Mm -hmm. why it would be really profitable to discover that there are certain genes associated with antisocial personality disorder, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so it's like, for one being that now you have a lot more justification to say that certain people are just evil and therefore they should be locked up because if people are the problem, then Mm -hmm. the solution is to treat them or keep them away, right? So, or isolate them from society and and exile them in some form. Mm -hmm. So, that's the like underlying basis for all of these studies, even though on the surface they seem like they're trying to do good, right? Like I think it's it's important to ask like who are they helping? Like who are they really mm-hmm. helping at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really wonder like I feel like if you are the scientist who finds the warrior gene, that is like a <laughs> like a career making yeah. yeah uh finding, but. Yeah, I think it's a shame that all these other scientists who are not finding things, but actually, you know, negative findings do tell us important things mm-hmm. about the world. And uh, I think this like is no a general criticism there. of like of, of scientific. And this is what happens when you do anything in the context of capitalism. Right. I think it's important mm-hmm. to understand that. Like, I, mm-hmm. I love doing research. I like science in that I like trying to understand our our world and make sense of it and try to use some sort of logical like scientific method to be able to like 
make sense of it, right? And know that there's limitations. And I think in, in the way that I think about it, and a lot of people maybe think about it, is it's humbling to know that there's so much we don't know. And we do yeah. not have the capacity to know. And there's no way we can ma- you know simplify and reduce this complexity, right? And you just sort of accept that. But under capitalism, now the incentive is profit, right? And the, and the incentive is to make money. So to make money, you need to publish in higher journals, because that increases not just your social and economic capital, but now you, you're actually creating a whole publication industry. And mm-hmm. now certain studies mean that you'll get pharma deals, right? And you might, you know, discover some something that can be patented because there's now a patent industry and <laughs> that can mm-hmm. make money. So the biomedical industry is a real thing. So there's so much now that where the incentive is just making money, not people, right? There, there is no people here. There is mm-hmm. no incentive to just do the right thing. There really isn't in science, right? And even mm-hmm. removed from mm-hmm. like medical biomedical science, a lot of science is now reduced to just people publishing studies to climb the ladder because it's just another job, right? Because that's what capitalism makes it. It makes it just another job. And mm-hmm. because like people at baseline don't aren't given the right to live, so they're not given resources. And I think, you know, a lot of people go into science even, and, and, and maybe this is something I realized after I did like the research that I did at, that, at UCLA, that now I don't no longer even believe in the foundations of that research, but... I understand that like, yeah, sure, I went into it <laughs> wanting mm-hmm. to like try to understand things. And I think a lot of people do science with that initial, right, uh, initial hope and initial um, maybe promise of like being able to do something helpful. And eventually you realize that's not like what's what's rewarded. That's not the reward pathway that exists, right? The reward pathway mm-hmm. that exists is producing certain type of results and finding any and all ways to change your data so you can get those results, which is what happens a lot, right? Like there's a lot of data embellishment yeah. and, and there's so much pressure to do that Right. Because you have to serve like in a lot of cases, people have to do that to be able to keep their jobs. People have to publish at a certain rate. People have to publish in certain journals, which will only publish positive associations. Right. And hot data and nothing Mm -hmm. that are especially now if you publish another study that shows that there is no biological basis of psychiatric disorders, you would be joining essentially hundreds of thousands of studies that have already shown that, which means that Mm -hmm. it's not going to be considered as novel, right? Mm -hmm. So oddly, these novel studies, so basically studies that are the first of something, get way more attention, even though they are the least proven and the least reproducible yet, right? Like they they Mm -hmm. are not proven and they cannot be used as valid signs yet at all. And that's like, that Mm -hmm. should be understood. But now you have capitalism and media as a whole industry being like, and they make their money based off of how big of a hype they can create around something, right? And how many people Mm -hmm. can click on their their story and how many people can like share a meme. So the next thing you know, you have someone like making it seem as though now someone's discovered the underlying basis of ADHD, right? So it's like it trickles down from from the scientists being like having to do certain things that are unethical because of capitalism and asking the wrong questions without even realizing it to like not. And, and a lot of times it's because the motive, right? When you question, like there is no thought process of like, is this helping someone? Are we helping someone? Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's mm-hmm. very rare that you actually ask those questions because that's not in that's not involved in the process of 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 publishing or designing your studies or coming up with like a good study to to even like, you know, invest your time and energy into, right? It's whatever is being funded. So there's mm-hmm. so much unethical behavior, I think, in terms of by unethical I mean like it doesn't really do anything helpful and it does more harm than good, but that's just mm-hmm. what people are doing within the systems that 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 we exist in. Mm-hmm. 
it's scary i think to go against consensus or i imagine if you're a scientist and you find something that doesn't line up with what like everybody else thinks Mm -hmm. because there's a a consensus statement about adhd Mm -hmm. which like hundreds i think of uh researchers signed on and they were like yeah like we believe adhd is a neurobiological Mm -hmm. disorder and like here's all the studies that we've gathered and they kind of like brought together just like a mass of studies and they Mm -hmm. were like look there's so many studies so this means it's true and there was a rebuttal that was published by Mm -hmm. like 30 something uh researchers who were like critical and nobody ever saw that i don't think (laughs) Yeah, and, uh, and there's actually a lot of those. So there's a lot of literature reviews. So literature, a literature review essentially is someone public, like a group coming together to look at all of the studies that have been published in recent years uh, on a certain topic and look at the grand conclusions that they've drawn from them. So they ha- there have mm-hmm. been a lot of that done in the context of like ADHD, autism, schizophrenia, and other forms of like psychosis and like any psychiatric disorder that you can think of. And mm-hmm. a lot of them have consistently shown that there hasn't been a biological basis reliably defined and they've even broken down, okay, so like a hundred of these studies, for example, like all had, you know, medicated, pre-medicated populations that were used as the experimental group. And that's a fundamental design flaw that automatically invalidates any conclusions they, they, they came up with because you can no longer mm-hmm. say that that found, finding was just because of a diagnosis as opposed to the medication that they were on. Or they go on to show that, okay, these studies had 10 people that they used and mm-hmm. then drew this massive conclusion from them, right? And so they there is a lot of this available. And if people go into it and dig into it, but it's not the first thing that pops up on Google because that's how the algorithm works right google comes up with the hottest <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. is being looked at the most and it is these like in unvalid unvalidated and invalid studies that i think mm-hmm. are more likely to be looked at and because the others are considered boring i guess <laughs> yeah or you know just not profitable there are i've i've dug and like found scientists and psychologists and psychiatrists who are like critical and, and writing this kind of like critical work but nobody fucking knows who they are they have like no twitter followers like they have no like they're they're not famous or anything like people who are i guess there's also dominance of american like researchers Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and how much attention they get right so there's a whole public i mean it's literally colonialism and racism right like uh if your lab is based in the u.s you're way more likely by that alone to land in a much higher journal whereas if your lab is based in elsewhere in the world like india china wherever you're Mm -hmm. you're gonna have a really hard time just because you are seen as less of a valid researcher and i don't Mm -hmm. think people are aware of the sort of bias like even the uh, even um if you have like trained for example as a physician elsewhere in the world and you Mm -hmm. come to the united states your degree means nothing you're gonna have to redo your training it doesn't matter if you're Mm -hmm. 50 years old and you've practiced as Mm -hmm. like a a trained physician as a surgeon somewhere else you're gonna have to redo Mm -hmm. your entire like medical training over again you know and that shows the inequity of like there's a strong bias of anything coming out of colonial countries right like preferably just like the u.s canada uk australia as being like like the hallmark of like what good science is and then science Mm -hmm. elsewhere is totally like disregarded and if not diluted down in terms of importance and you (laughs) on top of that like layer you you also then just have 
like I think we talk about like the power threat meaning framework, right? Which was like this alternative to modern psychiatry, like the lens of modern psychiatry that was propo- proposed by the British um, Psychological Soci- Psych- Psychology Society, mm-hmm. British Psychology Society, British I think. Psychological Society. Yeah. The British BPS. Psychological, yeah, BPS. Mm-hmm. So that is like the um, scientific society uh, that's sort of the uh, an analogous to the APA in the in the U.S. that's responsible for the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic mm-hmm. Manual for Psychiatry that's considered, I guess, like the Bible, again, coming out of the U.S. Um, and th- so the BPS produced this report that literally like provides a lot of um, a lot of research that shows that there's no validity to psychiatry and psychiatric diagnoses having any biological basis and mm-hmm. identifies all of these problems and like the fundamental way that diagnoses are constructed and and shows that these are extremely subjective and they're quote unquote not real in that they are they are shaped by whatever uh, people in power in that context of society associate to be normal, and mm-hmm. that's not gotten <laughs> like yeah. a splash, I guess, by the media, or it's not given a lot of attention, even though it's coming out of a the the medical field, right? Out of like experts that do this sort of research who are collectively coming together to just, and I think it's it's quite telling, like collectively coming together to say that the validity of this entire in, like field is is based on flawed studies that are that have a lot more malevolent insidious interests backing them than than mm-hmm. than people are told you know and that's totally ignored mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when you say validity <laughs> just for the, the listeners I'm at valid. home it, you are valid it, we are all validity valid. in like a science context <laughs> yeah yeah it's different than validity in like a social media Instagram I hate context. I hate the word valid because everybody loves <laughs> saying that to say nothing. So I've seen it on social media where people are like, "You are valid." I'm like, "What does that mean?" Like, if every if everybody is valid, is the asshole that says asshole things valid? I mean, I guess he is, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, well, and I'm sure you're probably hearing it in like in a in a science sense because when we talk about validity in yeah, so when science, it- you're talking about like something that has some kind of like evidence. Exactly. Yeah. So something that I guess has been shown consistently over time that has been shown to a degree of like reliability to where it's been shown not just enough times, but but by different people in different contexts Mm -hmm. and different groups that are totally unrelated to each other across the world have been able to like reproduce the same results. And like anyone can do it right with with the guidance provided in the studies. And Mm -hmm. you can take that conclusion and apply it in another context and you will still get the same answer. So, mm-hmm. but it takes, I, I, I don't think people even realize how hard it is to get something to go from just being like a hypothesis to some widely accepted theory. It mm-hmm. takes a lot of evidence and a lot of research. And even that, even so, right, like what gets funded and what gets looked at and what is like what gets systematically researched, there's a bias to that, right? There's a reason that there aren't exactly a lot of high impact journals telling you the benefits of acupuncture or Ayurveda or other like black, mm-hmm. brown, indigenous techniques of, of healing mm-hmm. and healthcare because those are not systematically researched and funded, right? Because who's funding this? Governments are funding this, industries funding this, and those are colonial and capitalist. So, 
and as a byproduct of colonialism, essentially the uh, black and brown indigenous cultures and traditions and systems, right, including their systems of healthcare, were erased <laughs> through genocide and replaced and forcefully replaced with what we have as the foundation of modern medicine and psychiatry, right? So there isn't mm -hmm. a lot of choice here either in terms of what's being looked at because. Mm -hmm. I think, and I mean, that's maybe like why I even had some sort of a like a naive now maybe vision of like wanting to go into research of trying to look at like not and not medicine, traditional, like being a physician uh, in tra traditional medicine, just because maybe if I can choose the question and choose the things that people don't look at. But you, you realize very quickly how hard that is because you can't, that's you can't not get funded. funded. Yeah, yeah, that's not funded. So you have to work on and But I think then I realized, okay, if I'm going to go into research, that's kind of what veered me away from psychiatry to infectious mm -hmm. diseases because psychiatry is so well funded. Um, mm -hmm. And it is like one of the most funded along with like cancer and like certain other, you know, certain other uh, branches of medicine one of the most well-funded branches of research and infectious diseases like struggles to get funding because when you think about whose li like whose lives it, t it takes infectious diseases mm -hmm. are the n number one cause of death or like one of the top causes of death in you know what we call the developing world right but like really part of the parts of the world that were colonized by 20th century Euro european colonialism so mm -hmm. i think now it's still a struggle like to to really get funding and i think we're always sort of up against the grain but um that's maybe why you kind of realize, oh, maybe the things that people uh, aren't being funded or the th things that there isn't a lot of profit incentive for. I was like, maybe that's mm -hmm. the safest bet to try to look yeah. at those things. And and psychiatry is like exceedingly popular. Mm -hmm. Well, because like chronic illnesses are yeah, much more it profitable. Is, it is. And, and that is the context of, um, so like in terms of like what gets the most funding, there's like two factors. Mm -hmm. One, what's killing people in colonial countries, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that's why things like stroke and like heart disease and uh, a lot of other conditions that are not infectious diseases in general get more well-funded because life expectancy is much, uh, much, much higher in higher income countries and mm -hmm. infectious diseases are no longer as much of a cause of death. Um, but also uh, in the case of like why, for example, we really struggle to get antibiotic research funded to come up with new antibiotics because we constantly keep running out of, of, of like older antibiotics that bugs become resistant to mm -hmm. is because antibiotics are actually like a curative like a curative drug yeah. as in like we give them to patients that have an infection we can prove they have an infection because we can actually isolate like the bug mm -hmm. that they have and measure how intense that infection is where it is and what it's doing to them and you can quantify that and then you give them an antibiotic and you wait for like whatever it is if it's a week or a month and then you can again try to measure those same things and they're better and you can no longer isolate that bug again so they're effectively cured of that infection and they never have to rely on that particular antibiotic for that infection again right so you mm -hmm. actually cure people in in whatever that word means and mm -hmm. with chronic illnesses uh like you know diabetes or hypertension or mm -hmm. psychiatric medication mm -hmm. people are lifelong dependent on them and mm -hmm. that is a when you're doing all of this when you're taking care of people's health in the context of profit and capitalism it's way more profitable to constantly get people to pay for medication rather than just yeah. take something for a week which is why antibiotic mm -hmm. research is not popular at all mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And cancer research is really profitable too, right? For the same, yeah. It's like for the, but still for the same reason in terms of like mm -hmm. 
how a lot of cancer therapy, like treatment, like chemotherapy and immunotherapy is long term. And Mm -hmm. it isn't something that's like easy, easily accessible. It takes a lot of resources. You have to do it at like, you know, very high level centers in terms of how much resources and money they have. So again, and also cancer is a higher cause of death again in like colonial countries because people are living longer. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so cancer, cancer, stroke, like, you know, other chronic illnesses come up when you have increased life expectancy. And those are just not as much of a problem in, you know, poor countries, I guess, because people are just dying earlier. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, the context of research is it is very subjective and also informed by all of the systems of oppression that like determine how people die and how what makes them suffer. And because if it's kind of interesting, because if capitalism is this really violent system that's constantly traumatizing people and people are always sad and depressed and and anxious and having like varied manifestations of the trauma that they're experiencing in an effort to make sense of the world that they live in then it seems like it would be really profitable to one blame them for 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 whatever pain they're experiencing to remove it mm-hmm. from capitalism and remove it from like oppression in any form and then also give them drugs as like, hey, maybe this will make you feel better. So now you've mm-hmm. just literally created an entire industry out of someone's yeah. pain. And you're doing a damn good job at keeping that, that like the essentially capitalism does a really good job of offering you solutions to the problems that they create and then making money mm-hmm. off of those solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a commodified solution. You can <laughs> exactly. buy your neurotransmitters. <laughs> And I'm assuming if they develop, um, which the reason that they study genes is because they want to alter them and like, you know, fix people, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. And I'm assuming those treatments would be extremely expensive and, you know, (laughs) only accessible to wealthy people. Yeah. Just like, for example, I don't know, like... um, IVF is right like I think that's mm-hmm. something that's like very much of the kind of altering biology in a tube sort of situation and mm-hmm. like it isn't accessible to everybody and any any kind of treatment in that way right like cancer treatment a, a lot of people in that context it, it is sort of the self-serving prophecy where if people are living in poverty and they they're they're probably just going to die early and of quote unquote natural causes mm-hmm. <laughs> right mm-hmm. as opposed to mm-hmm. then having all these like really expensive treatments for expensive diseases yeah one last thing i think we should go back to is the connection between racism and genetic studies so i found this tweet uh by uh dr kevin bird and it says um He's talking about the Buffalo shooting. In case you wonder why I spend so much time harping on genetic determinism and race science, I've just heard the shooter's manifesto directly referenced behavioral genetics work on IQ and violence being heritable as well as race and IQ research. And if you scroll down in this thread, um, somebody posted a screenshot from someone named Bo Weingard, who is apparently a social psychologist and he's basically saying like it's not my fault (laughs) how people are using my research um and he says i'm responsible to the data and to my conscience (laughs) which just kind of sounds like he doesn't think he thinks that data is objective and if you know these racists are using his research to justify atrocities that's not his fault yeah yeah 
So, yeah, I guess it's it's interesting because this sort of speaks to the cycle that science just falls into where it's always this eternal hunt to be objective that mm-hmm. <laughs> even though they acknowledge that old science that was done previously was extremely flawed because it was mm-hmm. influenced by all these subjective biases of the people that did it. And I think largely now there is recognition around a lot of these like race science studies that were done largely in the like 19th and 20th century that create you know cumulatively the evidence that people referred to to justify that race was a real biological variation between people so whether that was like genetics research or real like physiological differences that people were measuring like skull size or different phenotypes like skin and tolerance to pain and things like that i think all of those have sort of now been debunked by other research more recent research that has been rigorous and shown that there isn't like you can't have any genetic specific differences that you denote to a particular race because race is a social construct and you come up with what what fits those descriptors arbitrarily so there's like physical differences that you've assigned a social value to but still the irony then is at some point whoever was conducting this research was trying to say that what they're doing is very objective and they're measuring skull sizes between, you know, black people and white people and coming up with Mm -hmm. uh, a research article that documents these differences. And yes, that was those, that research was used to justify racism and essentially like chattel slavery and everything that, that emerged as a result of that. But that's Mm -hmm. like saying, (laughs) but we didn't, we just did the research Right. And Mm -hmm. ignoring the context in which those questions were asked or why people were even looking for differences between these like two arbitrary groups of people, which were, again, like a monolith of like white and non-white, essentially anyone and everyone that was considered non-white. Well, and I think it's kind of disingenuous because historically, you know, saying that there's a biological component to race, there's a really long history to that. And all of this research has grown out of that history. So you can't really like separate yourself from it. There's this other um, behavioral geneticist, uh, Catherine Harding, who wrote a book called The Genetic Lottery recently. And she's supposedly like a progressive, but she's making this argument that like actually IQ is genetic. And because it's genetic, that means that we need social equality. And it's like... (laughs) Right. How are you? You're making like you're trying to make a good argument with like really really bad. <laughs> yeah. So like there's genome wide association studies that try to pin down that there's like again genomic loci that are certain markers that are associated with people that have a higher IQ. Again, looking at one that the process of determining an IQ is entirely subjective and made up and designated based on like whoever created it, right? Which is informed with all these biases, and then also that it doesn't control for access to resources, levels of education, and like anything contextual, socially or politically, to be able to inform those, inform that data. So it's again, there's like this arc of different forms of biessentialism, I guess. Like now there's IQ and then also there was besides race, there's there was an arc of like gender and sex based biessentialism, right? Like trying to figure mm-hmm. out like chromosomal or even genetic and other sorts of clear differentiators between gender. And I think there was even a time when the progressive arc to that was trying to, for example, figure out that there was like genes that make people gay. Like, do you remember that 
oh, yeah. whole, and that was like seen yeah. as this like progressive thing because now you can prove that like queerness is real because like certain people are queer because they have these genes that like mm-hmm. somehow predispose them to queerness. <laughs> and mm-hmm. but I, I remember, I remember how so many people like you know neo, in the neoliberal space shared that as like this science hallmark of science objectivity matching up with like you know political mm-hmm. movements when it in fact further drills down that like sexuality and all these social constructs are somehow hard coded genetic differences yeah. where that people can't really like choose that this is something that they're just born with. And also it's independent of like how you're socialized to believe all of these gender and social, like, you know, sexual norms that are drilled into you essentially since you're a kid. So now I guess the arc is that arc is still going. There's a lot of there's still a mm-hmm. lot of labs that focus entirely on trying to prove that like, especially with, with even with uh, intersex and like other variations that somehow there's predictors that can mm-hmm. figure out like which gender people choose or which sex people end up like feeling more aligned with whatever it is. Right. This is this yeah. effort to be like, there's, there's gotta be something biological that just figures it all out rather than just like human choice and autonomy and agency as they evolve through life and, you know, social factors of influence and obviously. Yeah. And just like, we shouldn't need gene research to just respect people and (laughs) let them be who they are, you know? And it's like, but I think it is like a, like a, uh, I guess reliance on science that everybody's are always had since the like colonial colonial like colonial era right it's like all the systems that we currently have are still the same systems so mm-hmm. they're the dominant systems that people turn to for validation to prove that like whatever's going on is real in some way so science is sort of like the home western colonial science is the hallmark of proving people's suffering is real in some way differences are real in some way even though and i think the hardest thing is that there's like baked into this there's hierarchies and intrinsic like us versus them binary thinking so people are always on the hunt to be like aha like science Mm -hmm. is the objective metric that finally proves that x people are better than y or there is all of that rhetoric already baked in and it's it is like human beings just projecting hierarchies and binaries onto like diverse complex nature that just exists and trying Mm -hmm. to reduce it and simplify it to make it like legible right and like i mean that's how oppressive systems work to like govern us like that people are homogenized and reduced to be able to make them governable just because it's easier when people have certain labels they take on so they can be put into certain boxes so you can predict their behavior and their choices and market certain products to them but the same way Mm -hmm. i guess science is like a way to justify all of those social constructs as real if you can prove that like yes the world can be split into you know man and woman (laughs) white and not white sane and insane or whatever people are working Mm -hmm. on I guess it's so much easier to then like reduce all of this complexity and make people legible which means they're governable and easy to control yeah and also I guess it's like some of the one of the articles uh if you scroll down in the tweet (laughs) is an article uh that that talks about it's a it's a New York Times article that says why white supremacists are chugging milk and why (laughs) geneticists are alarmed (laughs) <laughs> and, and I guess it's it's talking to it's speaking about like a series of articles that have um, come out looking at like the genetic basis of of just like lactose tolerance 
and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out like whether that's related to certain ethnicity and like Mm -hmm. where people are more or less lactose tolerant and (laughs) and basically some conclusions around that were based on Europeans like Aryan Europeans being more able to like process lactose because they were cattle herders and they had more exposure to like certain diets that now in order for I guess white nationalists to be able to prove that they can like trace their ancestry back to it's like you know bloodline purity or whatever mm-hmm. right that they're able a, to, <laughs> they, they're able they made to a post <laughs> apparently there was so there's a scientist uh in the article who is like he gives a talk and he's using this as like an example and um, he shows a social media post from an account called Enter the Milk Zone with a map lifted from a scientific journal journal article on Detroit's evolutionary history. And so they're citing this um, and saying like, <laughs> they say, quote, if you can't drink milk, you have to go back, meaning like go back to your country. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because actually like this thing that they think is like this truth about like their genetic ability to like digest milk mm-hmm. is actually not just something that happened with like European populations. Apparently, no, it's everywhere. It happens around the world. In, yeah. uh, among cattle breeders in yeah, East in general. Africa. Well, and I so- mean that's like that's that, those are the study like studies that come around now that revert. I guess basically debunk race science. It's studies that show that you like these traits that people have like for example even like certain disease traits that are passed down through generations are more Mm -hmm. indicative like like more influenced by geography and where people are living and what they're dealing with and for example like sickle cell anemia right is is more indicative not just of like yes there's certain predispositions in terms of higher rates of that existing in the black community in the united states but that's also indicative of people living in a certain area where malaria is endemic and that's a trait that Mm -hmm. that transcends race that exists in different contexts as long as you have like the right mix of geographical environmental factors that come together to create sickle cell anemia so i think Mm -hmm. those are the type of studies that debunk race science right that people are like yes Mm -hmm. if you if you've like if that's a source of how you you know bred cattle in context of your local ecosystem and that's been part of like how you just metabolize food then it makes sense as to why your body would have evolved methods to be able to metabolize lactose it has nothing to do with europe it's about your like your your region and your environment Yeah, and then even even like culture, right, tradition and context, because I'm sure Mm -hmm. then if you talk about, for example, India, and now you're talking about an entire like religious population that doesn't like, you know, consume or like look to cattle as something that they can consume for for food, then you're obviously just going to have higher levels of lactose intolerance because it makes sense culturally and traditionally that that's just the context that that some people exist in. So, Mm -hmm. but again, it's it's, I guess, uh, a pattern of trying to reduce scientific conclusions to make sense in the context of whatever biases you already have. It's also the same problem with like those like like 23andMe, <laughs> like gene testing things, which people interpret as being about like race or ethnicity. But really, the, all it can tell you is like, if you have ancestors who lived in a certain region, yeah, like it's more about like a, a like a like a location regional thing not like yeah. an ethnicity thing 
Yeah, and I mean, I think people don't even think about, like, even if you push push that, like, how it describes ethnicity even like people think mm-hmm. of like maybe race is made up but i don't think people really even understand that when they say like race is a social construct but like ethnicity yeah. is a social construct too right because it's like defined mm-hmm. based on like nation states and borders and like those borders mm-hmm. have evolved over time so however 23 and me is going to deliver these results are sometimes yeah. just not going to make sense even based on like your ancestral history and migration patterns especially mm-hmm. if you've had like more you know nomadic communities that it, it won't make sense at all because you're like wait this doesn't make sense like we're, they're not from this part of the world but that it's that part of the world at that time in history based on whatever name was assigned arbitrarily drawn based on like probably the outcome of like european colonialism right like so it it won't even make sense ethnically if you think about it because Mm -hmm. ethnicity is still a construct Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. everything is is subjective like everything is informed by what people knew at the time and all of the dominant systems of power structures that shape like what's acceptable and what the mainstream narrative is. And now the mainstream narrative with psych, I guess, that informs all of the genome-wide association studies is that there's some biological basis to mental health, like aberrations or disorders or deficits or whatever the hell. And so that's yeah. like the questions like that people a, ask. <laughs> a causative biological basis like a direct like right right because obviously like everything has a biological basis but it's not like right like why you why you like lack like don't you know why you have lactose intolerance has has a biological basis yeah the reason for why that exists has this like very complex history and social context and geopolitical context and in the same way that you know i think people maybe understand this way more easily when you don't talk about psychiatry but like other branches of medicine i think people are starting to understand like why for example african americans have higher rates of diabetes or hypertension or certain other forms of like chronic illnesses that put them at higher risk right and yes there's a biological basis in terms of like why there's adverse health outcomes that emerge in certain communities but when you think of the context for why certain communities are sicker then Mm -hmm. there's like the causative agent is all of the sociopolitical factors that go into making certain communities sicker because they've just had like state violence and intergenerational trauma and colonialism and and everything that plays into that. But people just reduce it to, they don't really, I, I guess it's more reduction than anything, just not pushing past the, okay, we've observed this biological difference or whatever, mm-hmm. but why does that even happen? But with psych, it's even further because now you're talking about branch of medicine where we don't even understand how the mind works and don't have like the basic metrics to measure anything in psych. And mm-hmm. like, so basically psych is where, I don't know, like infectious diseases was in like 1928 when penicillin came out, right? Like it's like, we don't, we're so early in our capability to understand like how the mind works, how the soul works and all these more complex concepts that just go way beyond existing technology or science. And it's an effort to try to make it fit <laughs> yeah. with, with everything that we do know and just like force it into these like reductive binaries and using like whatever you have, right? And at this point, it's just guesswork. Mm-hmm. What do you think that people, scientists who study genes, like what kind of responsibility do you think they have? The, the way that these studies are designed in the first place are flawed, right? Study design is flawed. The questions they're asking are flawed. 
like the, all the studies that we reviewed on this episode, the question they're asking is so simple, which is like mm-hmm. taking hundreds of like 100,000 people, 200,000 people and asking a question like, what are the genes that, you know, cause schizophrenia, right? Like mm-hmm. that question is fundamentally like it's it's unethical to ask those sort of questions in, in the context of the society that we live in. And if you, I think that's part of how scientific training and medical training is done, right? Like it points to the larger problem that education is is just a sham because you get told that you need these things to be able to do your job and there's no context of like history and and political context and social sciences are not taught humanities aren't taught and then you just have people trying to like obsess over objectivity and thinking that like Mm -hmm. science and medicine are apolitical and exist independently of all of the like (laughs) oppression that exists in society when I think rather than even thinking of them as like complicit, they actively are systems that are turned to to justify oppression, right? Like Mm -hmm. it makes sense to oppress a certain group if you can biologically prove that they're inferior in some way. And that's Mm -hmm. always been used as a script, I guess, to like dehumanize certain people. So I think there's a moral responsibility for anyone doing science to make the best effort that they can to actually understand the social political context of the science that they do and stop pretending like everything's subjective because it's not. I think, the, yeah, the closest you can get to objectivity is realizing that everything is subjective and it's going to be shaped by all of your biases and all of your ignorances and limits to your knowledge are going to go into what you're doing, right? And I mean, science to a certain extent, yes, acknowledges that there's so much we don't know. So it's okay to like have a study disprove, for example, something that came before. But mm-hmm. also then you have to think about the, like what are science is a tool, right? And it's been used to do a lot of harm and perpetuate a lot of violence and justify a lot of oppression. And when done in the right context, with the right rigor, with the right motivations and intentions, then it's mm-hmm. able to, I think, right, help people and help communities. But that's not the context that we're doing it in now. And I think that's yeah. really just a result of like science and medicine under capitalism, right? Like when the priority is churning out publications, making money, figuring out how to maximize mm-hmm. your profits, whether it's in an academic institution or a hospital, all of a sudden the point isn't to try to do the most ethical research to help communities because that's probably not going to be the most profitable research. <laughs> so we got to be careful about the questions that we ask yes. and ask questions about the questions <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the context for your work like stop pretending that i guess this is generally for anybody that says they're apolitical nothing is apolitical we exist yeah. in a very complex society defined by oppression like just that is the state of the world but also defined by like complexity and diversity and understanding that but that's not how we're taught things right we're t- even when you think about like how you're taught science like remember when you were we were taught like punnett squares <laughs> and like Tra- like genetics are taught as like kind, there's people like men that. you know like mendelian <laughs> genetics like there's a tall oh, pea plant yeah, yeah. and a small yeah. pea plant certain yeah. things are called ho- like dominant traits or recessive traits but you don't mm-hmm. even question like why are certain things why is the short pea plant recessive like there's no like yeah there is no reason right like the short pea mm-hmm. plant actually might be quite advantageous in certain contexts but yeah. there, it's all of this like bias that's mm-hmm. baked into even what we call positive negative and like you know dominant recessive mm-hmm. right so it's like like binaries and like reduction is sort of like drilled into science to maybe at the beginning make it legible for like kids to understand yeah. but at some point it's like it becomes just this reductive 
And as it gets complex, there's still no social context and and no understanding of like, what has science really done for people historically? And mm-hmm. like, therefore, what's the system that we work within now if this is still the same context we're working within? That's all the anti-capitalist ranting we have for you today. If this episode has left you confused or questioning or you don't know what the hell we're talking about, we posted some of our notes and further readings on disorderland.substack.com. So go check that out for more details and be sure to subscribe to keep up with us. We're going to put out more newsletter content to go with the episodes, so look out for that. And please do share us with your friends and your feeds and leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.